So let's have a read of the very first commandment, which is um, what we're going to be looking at this morning. So we have Exodus chapter 20, and starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke all these words. Uh, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Brilliant. Well, that's definitely loud now, but you can turn it down a bit. Thanks, because it's a bit too boomy for me. Thank you very much. Brilliant. So there we have it, okay? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment. Now, last week, I think um, Joshua spoke about the purpose of the commandments. And um, just to remind you that there are three primary, primary purposes that God gives us the law for. And I'll, I'll just remind you, and I'll do it in a different order to the order that John Calvin put them in, just because of the way I'm going to present to you. So the first reason that we have the law of God is as offence. It is a fence that is there to protect society from man's own worst excesses. It's like a, a fence that stops us from falling over the cliff. Okay? It's to curb the extremes of human behavior, uh, whether that's revenge or hatred or, or, or murder or, or, or just basically anarchy and chaos. It's a fence to stop us from falling over the cliff. And if we're not careful, our society and our world in ignoring the laws that God has given us is falling over a cliff at this time. But God's law is there to keep us within safe bounds. But of course, the problem with that is that doesn't actually change our hearts, does it? It doesn't do anything to change us on the inside. It just imposes an external kind of fence for us. And so the second purpose of the law is that it is like a mirror. If you imagine a mirror, and before you come out to church this morning, you have your jam on your toast, and you do up your top and everything, and then you just look in the mirror as you're going out the door, and oh dear, you haven't done your buttons up properly, and you've got jam all over your face. All right, And so the mirror is there for you to, it looks like some people have done this, the mirror is there for you uh, to realize what's wrong, to show you what's wrong so that you can sort it out. And God gives us his law so that we can become aware of the weaknesses and the sins that are in our life. And so let me just give you a quote, and I do love this, from John Calvin. He says this, um, For man, blinded and drunk with self-love, must be compelled to know and to confess his own feebleness and impurity. If man is not clearly convinced of his own vanity, he is puffed up with insane confidence in his own mental powers and can never be induced to recognize their slenderness as long as he measures them by a measure of his own choice. But as soon as he begins to compare his powers with the difficulty of the law... He has something to diminish his bravado. The law diminishes our bravado. It, it pops our self-contentment and our vanity that we think we're okay. And then suddenly we look at God's law and we think, oh, 
are not okay. Now notice, by the way, that a mirror doesn't actually make us clean. A mirror doesn't change us. You don't take the mirror off the wall and use it to wipe your face. What you do, the mirror drives you to the water. And in the same way, the law doesn't cleanse us. But it does show us what's wrong so that we are driven to the water, which is Jesus Christ, whereby we are able to have our sins washed away through his grace. Or to put it a different way, the law is a little bit like a needle. Now, if you've got a needle in your hand, it's a sharp object. And you think, ouch, what's the point of this pointy thing? I mean, ow, it hurts. And of course, the law can be like that. It's quite sharp, isn't it? You think, I told someone this morning that I was doing the first commandment and they, they reacted. Oh, that's a bit sharp. You know, we can react. The law of God, oh, it's a bit harsh, a bit sharp. But of course, what, is it, what does an, a needle do? A needle dr- pricks something in order to draw a thread. And that's what the law does. Spurgeon put it like this. As the sharp needle prepares the way for the thread, so the piercing makes way for the shining silver thread of divine grace. You see, God's law pricks our consciences and we realize our need and then it draws the silver thread of the gospel into our lives. As we say, God, help, I need you. And we receive the grace of God, that silver thread of his gospel that is drawn through us. And so it's a beautiful thing that the law should lead us to Christ. So that's the second purpose of the law. The first is as a fence, the second is as a mirror or a needle, and the third is as a path to guide us. You see, now that we are Christians, we could say, that's it, I don't need the law anymore. The law has led me to Christ, now I have Christ, and that's it, I don't need the law. In in fact, doesn't the Apostle Paul say that we're not under the law anymore? And I think the answer is, yes, we're not under the condemnation of the law anymore. Because Jesus has become our condemnation. He took our condemnation so that there is now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're no longer condemned by the law. In fact, Jesus fulfills the law in every way. And now, because we are in Christ, all his perfect righteousness is attributed to us. And so that now we're in Christ, God looks at us and he sees, he sees someone who is righteous. He looks at you and he sees Christ's righteousness. And he sees, he sees you as righteous. That's an amazing thing because Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. However... We now want, of course, to follow him and to do what he wants. Martin Luther was explaining to a student at one time how the gospel means that we are not saved by our own good works, but by the saving work of Jesus. And the student responded to Luther and said this, Well then, we now live as we want? And Luther said, Yes, but what do you want? What do we want now that we are in Christ, now that we're forgiven, now that we know God? What do we want? We want to please God, don't we? 
God's changed our hearts so that we now don't want to follow the sinful nature anymore. We now want to be holy. We want to love God. We want to walk with God. We want to serve God. We want that love to flow out so that we honour our parents, so that we love our neighbours. Because God's law is good, you see, and we follow his law because it reveals his character. It's the way to life. It leads to a well-rounded, flourishing life. As we follow his perfect law by the power of the Spirit working in us. Not to save us, but because we're saved, we now want to please God. And he gives us his guidance for that. I love what um, one systematic theologian said about the law. You see, the law, the Ten Commandments cover all aspects of life. He said this, that the Ten Commandments, the first commandment protects true theology. The second commandment protects true worship. The third commandment protects the name of God. The fourth commandment protects the Sabbath and the use of our time. The fifth commandment protects family honor and authority. The sixth commandment protects life. The seventh commandment protects marriage. The eighth protects property. The ninth protects truth. And the tenth protects the heart. It's a comprehensive thing that covers all of life. And if we live by it, we live a well-rounded life that pleases God. So right now, we're just going to spend a little bit of time looking at this first commandment that God has given us. And he says this in verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let me just answer two questions. First of all, why should we worship God alone? Or why should we have no other gods before him? The second, what does it mean to actually worship God alone? Or to have no other gods before him? Why should we do it? And secondly, what does it actually mean and look like for us to follow that commandment? So first of all, why? And I think we can see in the verse here in Exodus 20 two reasons why we should want to do this. The first is because of who God is. It says in verse 1, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That's the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. The great I am. I am the I am. And so God says to to us as he prefaces this first commandment, he says, I am the Lord. In other words, God is totally self-sufficient. He's the beginning, middle, and end of all things. He is the prime mover, the prime maker, the sustainer of all things. He depends on nothing, but there is nothing that doesn't depend on him. He's in the category of one. He is the creator. Everything else is his creation. And so, because he is the Lord, he has the right to tell us how to live. 
He has the right to say, hey guys, I gave you life, so this is how I want you to live life. But there's a second reason in this verse where you see why we want to obey this command. And that is because of what he's done for us. Not only because of who he is, the Lord, but because of what he has done for us. In verse 2, it says, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Remember how God did that, of course. Uh, And I think Joshua referred to it last week, how he set them free from Pharaoh, from years of oppression and cruel slavery, how he set them free through the Red Sea into freedom. Now, the Prince of Egypt, the film, is brilliant, but kind of gets it wrong a little bit at the end because we think, hooray, now I'm free. And it misses the point that God brought them out of slavery so that they could be his people. And that was true freedom, to be his. He delivered them so that they could be his. Let me think of it like this. Imagine if you were to uh, go to a dog rescue center and to rescue a dog. And this poor dog is in a terrible state and uh, has been kind of mistreated and so on, and you rescue this dog. Now, you've brought it out of this dog home and out of a terrible place, but you don't then take it and let it free on the streets to fend for itself and roam feral around the streets. You rescued it so that it could be yours, so that you could look after and love this creature so that you could nourish it and walk it and, and pick up its poos and spend money on it and, and put up with its weird behaviour and not go on proper holidays anymore. I mean, you, you rescued it. You, you rescued it so that it could be yours, you see. Or to put it a different way, imagine if you were to um, adopt a child out of a terrible situation. Now, you don't just adopt this child so that it can now fend for itself and roam around and do what it wants. You've adopted this child so that you can love her, so that you can look after her. Yes, so that you can change her pooey nappies, that you can feed her, that you can guide her, provide for her, nurture her, raise her, cuddle her, spend lots of money on her, have lots of stressy times with her, be her parent, love her. And uh, she's yours to do that with. Now, God has rescued us out of slavery so that we can come into his loving care and be his people. I am the Lord your God, it says in this verse, doesn't it? It says, I am the Lord Yahweh your God. I am your God. And you are mine. I think, uh, Alfie, we have verse chapter 19 uh, of Exodus and verse 3 up, which we can see. This is just uh, a chapter before where it says this, that God, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you to say to the house of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. 
Now if you obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you to speak to the Israelites. God wants to lead his people tenderly, guide them wisely, treasure them affectionately, and be with them eternally. And he wants exclusive relationship with them so that they might love him and know him and walk with him, so that he might sort out their mess and spend loads on them and train them and enable them to fulfill their destiny and their potential. He saved us out of slavery so that we could now be in his hands and fulfill everything he has for us. So that's why this command is given, because of who God is and because he has made us his people. But what does this mean then in practice? What does it actually look like to obey this command, to have no other gods before me? What does it mean to have no other gods? Well, surprisingly, negatively, guess what? It means to have no other gods. (laughs) Negatively speaking, to have no other gods obviously just means that. It's simples, really, to have no other gods. What does that look like in practice? Well, I would suggest it means that we have no other gods, whether they be superstitious gods or sophisticated gods. We don't have superstitious gods. So, for example, we don't, we don't do horoscopes. And we, don't, we don't do Halloween. And, and we don't touch wood, and we don't get lucky, and we don't thank our lucky stars, because he ordains all things. He's the one who gives us breaks. He's the one who controls everything. He's the one who is the source of all power. We only need to look to him. No other superstitious gods or nonsense. But neither do we have sophisticated gods, because in our culture today, we like to think that we're not superstitious, although actually our culture is, I think, pretty superstitious, but we also have very sophisticated gods. And so we look, for example, to politicians to give the answers to all of life's problems. Of course, we we think, you know, politicians have their place. Uh, but, and it's good to debate, and it's good for them to put forth their arguments and so on. But ultimately, we don't believe that they're going to solve all our problems. Or we can think that our, my money will save me and protect me. Or we think that this person is my rock, and I totally depend on them. Hang on, I think God said that he was our rock. Now, we can depend on other people, we can love other people, and so on, but we mustn't put all our hope in a person because he wants us to put all our hope in him and then to enjoy the people that he's given us around us. We might think, well, this thing is the source of all my joy. Well, if it isn't God, ultimately it will let you down. So negatively then, we're to have no other gods before him. But 
Positively, let's put it the other way around. You see, these Ten Commandments have a positive aspect to them. If we're not to have any gods before him, what does that mean positively to have him as our God? Positively, it means that we, of course, believe in God. This commandment actually kind of basically prohibits atheism, doesn't it? It says that we're to have him as our God. But not only that he exists, but that we get to know him, what he's like. And so we get to see him. We get to see how great and awesome and perfect and majestic and holy and loving he is. And therefore, because we see who he is, we want to give him our total loyalty and love. You see, the more we see what he's like, the more we want to worship him, the more we want to fear him, the more we want to follow him, the more we want to honor him and trust him and live for him. It's like, you know, people, when they buy a new car um, or you get a car, you notice how people really look after their, their lovely new car and, uh, you know, they polish it and shine it and drive it carefully and so on. And then you see someone else that maybe buy it, get themselves an old banger. Uh, in fact, our son has just bought his first car. Um, <laughs> Nissan Micra. <laughs> anyway, never mind. Uh, um, but... You know, the, the value that you put in your car will be reflected in how well you look after your car. If you don't really value it, you won't really look after it so much. If you do value it, you will look after it. The more that we get to value God, the more that we will look after our relationship with God. Um, there's a wonderful quote, uh, again, from Calvin. Uh, John Calvin says this, uh, that as we get to know God, let me read this to you. He says, steeped in the knowledge of him, we may aspire to contemplate, to fear and worship his majesty, to participate in his blessings, to seek his help at all times, to recognize uh, and by praises to celebrate the greatness of his works as the only goal of all the activities of this life. Then let us be aware of wicked superstition by which our minds turning aside from the true God are drawn away hither and thither to various gods. If we are content, therefore, with one God, let us remember what was said before, that we are to drive away all invented gods and are not to rend asunder the worship that the one God claims for himself. For it, is, if it is, sorry, for it is unlawful to take away even a particle from his glory. Rather, all things proper to him must remain with him. That's great, isn't it? All things proper to him must remain with him. So let me finish with a few verses because these, I think, just drive home. And I, I hopefully you can just meditate on these, these verses that just remind us of who God is. So first of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says this. In Deuteronomy 4, it says, Acknowledge and take 
to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I'm giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This is known as the Shema in, um, in Israeli and in uh, uh, Jewish worship and Christian worship. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. You see, this first commandment, this greatest of commandments, underpins all the other commandments. It deals with the heart of the matter. This is where we start with God first. He is the foundation upon which we build our lives. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we don't just say, you know, well, I'll have a little bit of God, and I'll have a little bit of that, and I'll have a little bit of this, and we hedge our bets. People sometimes say, don't they, I, I'm going to put, uh, I, I don't put all my eggs in one basket. Now, that's good financial advice, but it's not good advice when it comes to God. With God, you can and should put all your eggs in his basket. Because he is the only one who will never forsake us, who will never let us down. Hear, O Israel, I, the Lord, your God, I am one. So I love it. In Psalm 62, it says this. My salvation and honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times. You people, pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Isn't that helpful? Trust in him at all times. You know, the hardest of times. The, time, the times when, when we're hearing, hearing this morning, when it's the, it's the hardest thing to do. He says, trust in me at all times. Pour out your hearts to him. I love what it says in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth. With the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. In every area, put in first. And there are times when things are challenging and life is challenging. Hezekiah, the great king of Israel, faced a challenging time. He received a very threatening letter. He received some bad news. And what did he do with it? Did he go to his friends and moan? Did he go to the lawyers? No, he went prostrate before God. And in 2 Kings 19 and verse 14, he said this, 
Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And then he prays, help. He goes to God. And Elijah encourages us. Elijah had a showdown with the prophets of Baal, do you remember, on Mount Carmel? And Elijah said to them, he went before the people and he said to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? This is in 1 Kings 18. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Make up your minds. Who are you following? And if you're following him, do it properly. Do it wholeheartedly. Do it completely. We finish with a famous passage in Joshua 24, where Joshua says this to the people. He's giving a speech to the people, and he says in verse 14, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if the serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served before the Euphrates, beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You made that choice today? I know you're here because you've made that choice. Someone here might have been difficult to come today, but you made that choice because you said, I'm going to trust the Lord at all times. Let's be thorough in this. Let's search our hearts and minds and let's ask God to reveal if there's any area in which we're holding back, resisting him, Let's be a people who worship him alone because he is the Lord and he has become our God and we are his people and we're safe in his hands and we're making the very best choice when we say, as Joshua did, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you've revealed how great you are and awesome you are. Lord, we, we pray that we would appreciate afresh your greatness this morning. We pray that we would appreciate again. And as we go from here, we would go deeper and deeper into our knowledge of who you are. And Lord, we pray that from that, we might be increasingly surrendered to you, devoted to you, trusting of you, worshippers of you. We pray that you would deepen our spirituality. We pray that over these coming months, we would go deeper 
in our trust of you, in our fear of you, in our honouring of you, in our worship of you. Lord, we don't want to have any other gods before you. To you alone. Lord, we just lay everything else at your feet. Thank you that when we put you in the right place, everything else falls into place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.